Uh, it's good to be uh, together, and we're looking at Luke's gospel. And we've got as far as Luke chapter 5. Um, last week, we looked at the bit just before this, in Luke chapter 4. And amongst other things, the main thing that came out of that was to do with Jesus having authority. And the challenge to us was to respond by bending to come into shape with what he says and what he, what he commands. Um, this week, this week's title has, has had several titles and sort of ended up with no title and just the reference. Um, because there's several different ways we could describe what we're going to look at this morning. We're looking at the beginning of Luke chapter 5. This is where Jesus calls the disciples who are fishermen. And... Uh, he invites them to respond to his authority by following him. So one title that we had was about uh, Jesus having authority that's worth following. But actually, we're not going to restrict ourselves to just this passage. But I'm gonna, after I've read it in a moment, I'm going to explain why we actually need to look at a significantly larger chunk of Luke's gospel in order to make sense of what this passage has to say to us this morning. And so another title that I've looked at is How Disciples Become Apostles. How Disciples Become Apostles. And I just wanted to say this by way of introduction. I don't know what comes to your mind with the word apostle. It's one of those words that has been given a bunch of different definitions and for some people, it means very much the founding 12, and then maybe a few others that kind of sneak in to the New Testament. For others, it's about the leadership of networks of churches, and others have defined it differently again. Just want to uh, say, let's not get hung up on that this morning, because it would be easy for us to look at these few verses and think that they're not relevant to us, because it's about this special group of people from long ago, when in fact, the scriptures tell us of themselves that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and uh, leading us into all that God has for us. So these verses have something to teach us, and we are all sent out into God's world in Jesus' name. And the word apostle, it has its root meaning in that whole thing of being sent out, and we're all sent out into God's world. So whether you have any kind of ambition to be an apostle with a capital A, like a title and a, this is your life, um, we're all, as God's children, called to go out into God's world in his power, in his name, and are therefore all apostolic in that sense, or called to do so, to be apostolic. And so this passage is not just someone else's story, it's a window onto what God wants to do with every single one of us. It's about an invitation that's given to some guys in a boat a long time ago, but the same invitation is offered to us today. So here we go, in Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's sometimes called the Sea of Galilee, uh, with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. That's just, that's just making good use of acoustics, by the way. Water conveys the sound well, and that's very sensible. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, uh, this, this, this has to somehow be read with the tone of someone being told by an ignorant person how to do the job they've done all their life. Because he's about to say, well, look, we've been fishing all night, and the reason they'd been fishing all night was it was easier to catch fish at night and really a, a thankless task to try to fish during the day because the fish could see what you were doing and they'd be spooked and so on. So they'd been doing it sensibly. And then Jesus, in the daytime, says to them, let down your nets. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard 
This is kind of, I'm trying to get the tone of this right, but I imagine it's something like, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. That sort of tone. But there's something going on in his heart. And he says, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Carolyn last week, wherever Carolyn is, spoke from Isaiah 6 about this self-same thing. Isaiah comes into the presence of God in the temple, and at the moment of having a revelation of who God is, he says something very similar. He says, I, I have unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Simon Peter says, it's the Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. In Matthew's gospel, uh, it tells us that at this point, Jesus didn't only call Simon, Simon Peter, but also his brother Andrew and the James and John that helped bring in the catch. He called all of them and said to them all, you've been fishermen, do you want to join me in fishing for men? And they said yes, that's what they wanted to do. And so here we have, at the beginning of Luke chapter 5, an invitation to become fishers of men. A few chapters later, if we were to turn ahead to Luke chapter 9, and the beginning of Luke chapter 9, you'll see a heading there that says, Jesus sends out the 12, or in a different translation, you may see something slightly different has been put as the heading. But there is this period of time in Luke's, Luke chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, in between calling them to be his disciples with a promise of sending them out and the moment when he actually does send them out. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a look at what's contained in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. If you were in the other synoptic gospels, that is Matthew or Mark, you would find the same content in Matthew chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, in Mark chapters 4 and 5. And you see there are some things that Jesus does with these disciples to turn them from people who put their hand up and say, yeah, I'll follow into people that he can send with authority. That's the framework of what we're looking at this morning. There are some common things. If you look across those three Gospels, there are some common things that Jesus clearly had in mind as, if you like, the curriculum for apprenticeship. I don't know what training courses you've been on, if you've been on any training courses recently, but these chapters are... Jesus' curriculum for training as an apprentice apostle. If you're going to be an apostle, you ought to be interested in what Jesus does in these few chapters. The thing that he does the most, I've got six things, by the way. I had seven. And then I thought, well, obviously time will run away from me, number one. It's already quarter to one, by the looks things. And also, I couldn't really figure out what my seventh point was. It's in the text, but we'll get to it in due course. I thought, let's stick with six that are clear. The first one, that's all about the context. Okay, oh, that is, that was, I'm sure that was white. <laughs> I put it on there, but fine. It'll become clearer in a minute because Andy's at the desk and he's marvellous. Um, there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, this picture is just talk, talking about apprenticeship Apprenticeship in anything practical involves demonstration. In our culture, in the West today, we tend to think of training as involving sitting down in rows and learning facts and then going away and, and doing them. But 
that's not how Jesus set about training apostles. He was a bit more like this cobbler or any manner of other practical professions where he actually invited them to come with him and to be with him as he went about demonstrating how you fish for men. That is to say, he demonstrated to them how to exercise authority. It's there right through the chapters that follow. It's the most common thing that we see there. There's authority over sickness as Jesus heals a leper, someone who's paralyzed. He heals someone with a shriveled arm. He heals a woman who is bleeding incessantly. He sets someone free from demonic influence. He calms a storm, authority over creation and even authority over death as he raises Jairus' daughter back to life. As Jesus did this, he was expecting these disciples to pick up on what he was doing and start to get into the groove of thinking and acting like him. The stories are not just there to prove to us today how powerful God is and how powerful Jesus is and what he did and these are signs of his divinity. They were part of a training course that happens to have been recorded for our benefit. In Luke 8 and verse 25, just after he has calmed the storm, Jesus turns to the disciples who are in the boat with them and says, because they're, they're, they're surprised at what he's done, and he says, where's your faith? He says uh, in, uh, I think in Mark's gospel, why do you have so little faith? He clearly has set an expectation that they will grow in faith and that in their time with him, they will go from having very little faith to starting to share with him an expectation of God's authority, bringing God's kingdom that does people good. It's one thing to read about these kinds of stories and another thing to be part of it when someone's demonstrating it. I remember years ago reading about one of the many stories about John Wesley crossing the Atlantic in a boat, obviously, and a great storm being predicted to come their way, which would have risked everyone's lives. Great fear on the boat. And someone said, Mr. Wesley, there's a problem. And he got up from his deck chair where he was reading a book and got on his knees and prayed for a minute or so about the storm and then went and sat back down and carried on reading. And people said, well, really? That, uh, w what else then? And he said, no, it's fine. I've, I've prayed. It's okay. And indeed, the storm was averted. A couple of years ago, when we had Heidi Baker here, who many of you will know about, who works in Mozambique, she told us a story of God speaking to her to rebuke um, a typhoon, I think it was, which then never materialized. And this very inspiring story. My guess is that not many of us who heard Heidi Baker speak have been out rebuking typhoons recently. My, my point is that we can hear these stories and be inspired but there's something rather different that's needed to train us. When I was an undergraduate, I had the privilege of leading the University Christian Union. And one of the things that we did then was organize a barbecue on St. Hilda's Meadow uh, every summer. And uh, there was a predict this was a much looked forward to opportunity to sh to, for our friends to hear the gospel about Jesus. And we prayed that it would be a time that worked like that. And uh, there was a forecast, heavy rain. And um, I remember being at a prayer meeting and somebody praying a prayer that I would not have prayed. And I thought, well, it's wet. I mean, I'd be praying that people think to bring an anorak with them. That's where I was at. 
And this other person uh, prayed instead that God would make the field to be dry. And they prayed. And I thought to myself, okay, fair enough. I can see the clouds coming. And the clouds came and the clouds came over the city and it, it rained everywhere. And my cynicism was proven correct until we went to the field, which was bone dry. And since that time, my attitude towards praying for the weather has changed. You see, I knew the person who was praying, and I knew that actually they were less mature in their faith than I was, or at least it seemed to me, that actually knowing them, they were more concerned for the physical well-being of our guests than I was. I could see that. I could see what was motivating the prayer, and I learned a huge amount from watching all of this thing unfold. I don't know, have we got any testimonies here of praying for the weather? Who's prayed for the weather and seen it change? Is there a microphone somewhere? Let's just hear a couple on the front row. Joe. We actually got married on the 21st of October 1995. Um, the day before, it was abominable. Um, I think we experienced practically every single weather there was going. Um, and we prayed that it wouldn't be bad. My faith went as far as, please, Lord, don't let it be this bad. Um, the day after, it snowed. It was pretty rubbish the day after, but on the day, the temperature rose 10 degrees. It was bright sunshine and wall-to-wall blue sky, which is still in the photographs that we took. It still amazes me every time I look at it. Brilliant. God loves marriage, eh? Hey? <laughs> Michelle had a hand up. We'll make, we'll, we'll, Michelle will be the, the last. Well, this is a, not a story praying against rain, but for it, because most of my recent life has been spent in the desert, not in England. <laughs> so um, we had a, a, just a long dry spell in what should have been the rainy season. People, animals were dying. Um, people are dependent on the rain for their crops to survive. For a few security, it was looking bleak. And we got together and fasted and prayed. And we went around and told the town that we had prayed for rain and it rained <laughs> and it rained five days in a row and yeah praise god isn't that good so if you want to learn about praying for the weather there's at least a who else has got a story of praying for the weather just wave a hand toby did there as well these are the people that you need not just to hear the stories from but go pray with them if you've got a weather-related issue, find someone who knows how to pray with authority about the weather and pray with them that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He didn't just give them a manual and say, since I am the authoritative word of God incarnate, this is going to work. Instead, he demonstrated something with them and let them be part of what he was doing. And so they learned. Authority over sickness. I've read all sorts of books about sickness, but I never prayed with any confidence for people to be healed until I went to a seminar by Roger Cole. Does anyone else share that particular experience? That's a bit of an OCC experience. Roger Cole is someone who's been around our churches for years, teaching people to pray for the sick. And he has a great way of doing it. He'll invite people who are sick to be prayed for, and then he'll pray for them. And he'll say, does anyone else want to come and pray with me? And the people come nervously forward, and he says, well, look, you just put a hand on them whilst I pray. And then the next person that comes, he says, well, look, now you're here, you may as well say a few words. And then he steps back. And before you know it, you're doing, you're engaged in a healing ministry. This is how Jesus also trained his disciples. We don't have that level of detail in the Gospels. It's true, but we do see him giving tasks to the disciples, being there for them, showing them what to do, giving them feedback on how well things have gone, celebrating their successes and occasionally rebuking the things that they don't get quite right. Um, 
Authority over demons is also there in these few verses. Again, it's a learning by doing thing. It's great that Lorraine's here this morning because Bev and I learnt by doing this with Steve and Lorraine. We, our first experience, actually, our very first experience of trying to pray for someone who was very much oppressed by demonic powers. Her, her dad was a self-styled warlock and uh, I went and prayed with someone else in the church here and we did them no good really. We spent about two hours praying and all that happened was a, a tight knot of excruciating pain moved around her body. So every, every time we prayed it wouldn't be somewhere, it went somewhere else. And, and frankly we were not a blessing to her. We just gave her pain. Um, so that wasn't so good. Um, I remember being encouraged reading a book by John Wimber. For those of you that are too young to have ever seen anything by John Wimber, he's like Bill Johnson but a generation before. And I remember him saying the first time that he just went at it to try and see someone set free from demonic oppression, it took him nine hours. And again, the person was not tremendously blessed by the process, although eventually blessed by freedom. And I thought, well, maybe I should have just taken all night with this person. And, but actually, um, I didn't get anywhere just trying to work it out. Then... There was a young woman in the small group that Bev and I were leading who, um, I mentioned this when I was with the students on Thursday evening, a young woman who um, had panic attacks, so much so that she uh, spent most nights on her kitchen floor shaking uncontrollably. We observed that she was tired (laughs) of an evening when she was in our our, um, room, our studio flat that we were living in at the time, where our house group met. Um, but didn't know what was going on until eventually she said, we think we need, we need to pray and there's something to shift. We went and we spent the evening with Steve and Lorraine and they uh, asked certain questions. They had a confident expectation that the, the Holy Spirit would speak, would lead us through. Um, got out of the girl quite quickly what was really going on, which was that though British, her family were from Sierra Leone and when she was in her early teens, she was taken there subject or handed over to a witch doctor subject to genital mutilation and cursed and uh, and we prayed and uh, she was set free and slept and has gone on to live a happy life um she's a mum and she is enjoying life and um after that bev and i had the next time we had someone to pray for we again met with Steve and Lorraine. We prayed. This time we asked a few questions. They made sure we didn't go too far off track. And bit by bit, we learned by doing. We had some, some authority demonstrated to us, and we learned from that. It was a practical thing. Um, I don't know about you, but pretty much everything that I can do by way of spiritual Christian ministry, I've been shown how to do. Um, I can get on and run an alpha course because I once did one with a guy called John Olhausen, who managed to get 20 of his, or uh, slight exaggeration, 17 of his neighbours to come to one. A retired Anglican vicar, lived around the corner from us. Amazing guy. Just recently, realising that I'm not adept at leading people over the line to make a commitment to faith in Jesus... I took time in the summer to join in with an evangelistic cafe run by Richard and Kate Colebrook, who've done that umpteen times, and was actually in conversations with people, seeing how Richard went about saying, so are you ready to make a commitment? Are you, uh, what, what is it that's holding you back? And so on. And this was someone with whom, by that point, I'd had a whole bunch of conversations. I'd been wheeled in to answer the question about science and faith, being of a scientific background. And then we'd had a long conversation about whether the Loch Ness Monster disproved God. Which was a surprise to me, that that would be an issue. Um, But that, you know, this was the reality of what was going on. And Richard came over and joined us. So I was lost in the likelihood of sonar catching Nessie. That's where the conversation had got to. That's where I'd got to. And Richard came along and asked a couple of questions, insightful, asking about what, where the process was at, what God was doing, what they had faith for, and so on, and left the guy right on the cusp. He didn't get born again there and then, but was right on the cusp of saying, oh, I know what I need to do to properly explore this thing, and I think I might make a decision. Learning by doing together 
with someone else. Um, That's one of the reasons why we have what we call missional communities in the church. Even if your sole focus in your mission in life is something that you envisage doing alone in your workplace, the skills that you need in ministry to function apostolically in that place are not so likely just to fall from heaven or out of a book into your lap and become things with which you're really familiar and comfortable so that you can just go and do it. One of the reasons why we have missional communities in the life of our church is because they're a place where you can do things together and learn from one another. Um, You could join in with the Waddingtons and the rest of EDGE in learning, what does it actually look like to help people who are facing often some fairly major challenges in their life as they have a passion to help people who are looking for housing, looking for work, facing all kinds of challenges um, that are quite significant, but that God will help with. But what does that look like and how does that feel? You could learn by spending time with these guys. You learn pretty quickly. Um, is Leke here this morning? Just looking around for him. I wanted to honour Leke, who's one of our students. Um, he came and told a testimony here about going to Crete, which is part of Paris, singing carols in hospitals and so on. And that's happening again this year. Is there someone here this morning who's going to Crete? There's a ginger hand there, Ruth, stick it up high. There we go. Um, if you want to go to Paris and sing Christmas carols, 9th to the 14th of December, you can. Um, that's happening again this year. Um, when Leke went a couple of years ago, even though in France there's this rigid separation of church and state so that you're not supposed to do anything Christian in hospital, he just got on and prayed for someone. And it opened a door into the heart of someone who was a senior um, person working on the ward. And there's been an open door into that hospital ever since. It was great. Who was here when he told that testimony? It's a great testimony to hear. But you know what? I would love to have been there and felt the atmosphere in a secular hospital where you're not supposed to do that. And was there any encouragement coming from the woman, any smile on her lips that helped him do that? Or was it just a little rush of faith from the Holy Spirit? What was that like? I've heard the story. I've not done anything like it since. But you know what? I think if I'd been there, I'd have been changed in what I feel the confidence to do. That's the example that Jesus sets. The thing that he did more than anything else was demonstrate how to exercise authority, giving his disciples the inside track. So that's number one, and it's really the main thing. But there are a few other things. Prayer before... This is, um, this is Sister Christina Scuccia, who won the voice, the, you know, the singing talent contest thing in Italy, obviously. Um, you know, this thing where the chairs swivel around and they all wanted her on their team before they knew who she was. So her talent won through. Prayer before popularity. It's actually the very next thing after these few verses that I read at the start in Luke chapter 5, Verses 14 to 16, after Jesus has healed, gone on and healed a leper. Verse 14, Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifices that Moses demanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet, the news about him spread uh, all the more so that crowds of people came to hear Jesus to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Ha. Huh. Um, we don't, we'll come back to this lady in a minute, we don't do good things, even miraculous things, so that others would see. We do them for the sake of love, as is spelt out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. Whatever we do, if it's not done out of love, it's useless, worthless. We don't do things for show. Jesus set an example to his disciples of stepping away from popularity in order to take time to pray. So we, could, we would do well to pray for this nun who was presumably well occupied with prayer in a convent 
before gaining the popularity that she now has, we would do well to pray for her that her popularity doesn't spoil her prayer life. Because it might well do unless God helps her. See, our success can be the biggest obstacle to prayer. We pray and we pray and we pray for success, but that very success can be the biggest obstacle to our prayer. Indeed, our greatest success can be our personal undoing. Imagine, imagine you find a colleague at work who wants to know about Jesus. Imagine you bring them to an alpha course here and you pray. You're part of leading them to the Lord. You take on the task of supporting them in their Christian walk, but it starts to take up more and more of your time to connect and to process the many questions that they're asking. You find yourself under pressure and perhaps pray less. This is not an unusual thing to happen. The very success that we pray for makes us busier and we pray less. Suppose you do well at your job and get promoted, answer to prayer, but you work longer hours and so you pray less. Our greatest success can be our personal undoing. You might pray for a house of your own and experience God's provision. Um, I was visited a couple on Friday evening, they're not part of OCC, who, uh, she's eight months pregnant, they needed a house to live in Oxford. They were 30, 40,000 pounds short. They prayed about it. Um, someone in their family that they didn't think would do this just at that point gave them something that was that value. That's their story of miraculous provision in answer to prayer. You might do that, experience God's provision, but then spend all your time in Wicks and Dunelm (laughs) and pray less as a result. If, suppose, you're in a mission or community, you might pray for growth. You might pray that God would cause more people to join your fellowship. You then might spend many hours trying to work out how to rearrange the group ahead of dividing it into two, many hours talking with everyone involved, and you might pray less as a result. Success can be the enemy of true discipleship. I'm fascinated, truly fascinated, by the last thing that Jesus does in Mark's gospel. You might want to turn there to Mark chapter 6. The last thing that Jesus does is recorded in Mark's gospel ahead of sending out the 12. You might remember that a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at Luke chapter 4, that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. And then when we say Jesus was rejected, it was full-on attempt to kill him. Kind of, that was the nature of the rejection. They took offense and they wanted to stone him and he just managed to escape with his life. It says in Luke, he slipped through the crowd. Just before going, uh, sending them out, it says in Mark chapter 6, Jesus left where they had been and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. It, just clock what is going on here. In Mark's gospel, the last thing that Jesus does before sending out the twelve is take them to the one place of his crystal clear ministry failure. Last thing he does before sending them out. Let's go to the place where it all went wrong. And the story goes on again. The people were amazed. Where did this man get these things? Um, And Jesus is again amazed at the lack of faith that is there in Nazareth. Now, we could ask a theological question about the, you know, is the, are these really two incidents or have Mark and Luke moved the order of them around in order to fit the story? In a sense, it doesn't really matter. If we step out of Luke's gospel for a moment and read Mark's gospel, Mark places this story right before the disciples are sent out that the place that Jesus takes them to prepare them for going out is he takes them to the place of his own failure. When I say failure, let me be clear. I don't mean that Jesus stuffed up. 
I don't mean that. Jesus never stuffed up. Jesus was, has been for all eternity and remains and will ever be perfect. But, but he experienced you know, a, a lack of success. I mean, how else do we put that? Failure is the word that we normally use. It's like he was at pains to make it clear to them that becoming like him and taking on his ministry was not the same as becoming a success. There's more to it. Prayer before popularity. Flexible. That's something else we find. These guys are limbering up to play a sports match uh, in Warsaw as it happens. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, which you're actually going to hear spoken about next week, that's where there's the teaching about new and old wine and new and old wineskins and what that says about flexibility. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is questioned about the Sabbath and he has a flexible attitude towards the Sabbath, which was a surprise to everyone. The purpose of this flexibility was always to do good to save life. Jesus surprised people by how flexible he was when there was good to do and lives to save. Um, from time to time, I have discussions with, with people uh, here in the church about whether our church meetings uh, are flexible enough in the, uh, our, the timing, the content, our expectations, whether we're flexible enough for the purpose of doing good and saving lives. Saving lives. Um, I probably would say this. I like to think that we're flexible enough. Um, we certainly review things often enough and with deep enough intent that there's room for flexibility. If there's any point of flexibility that you think, actually, you know what, this church is rather like a stiff old wineskin at this point, I'd love you to tell me, because the last thing that we want is to be unresponsive to the Holy Spirit. And there's a constant tendency for us to harden up and just do what we're used to doing. So please, um, if you see any hardness, please do say so, because you may have been the first person to spot it, and that kind of gives you a responsibility to tell others. Review is helpful. Um, in January, we are going to have um, someone speaking at our regional celebration who has come and spoken in this building a few times before, though not on a Sunday morning. His name is John McGinley. He's the vicar of Holy Trinity Church in Leicester. Those of you who make use of the prayer um, pattern, the daily prayer pattern we have called Breathe, we nicked it from them. That's where it comes from. And he tells a story of something that happened in his church. And I was mentioning this at the Melting Pot Mission community that I was at um, when I was last there recently. They had a couple of families in their church with children with Down syndrome. And they thought that together they could take on a mission to similar families and do something to share the love of Christ with those other families. And so they did um, something. They started a regular cafe with appropriate activities for the kinds of children that they knew would come and newspapers and bacon butties and coffee and that for the parents. And it was soon heaving with people that came to it. They had 60 or 70 people there normally, lots of families that they connected with, and they were being recommended by social services, and a great thing was going on, done in the name of their church, and by that, really in the name of Christ, offering this service to people. After a year, they stepped back and reviewed what was going on. And what they recognized was that something great was happening, but that all of the church people involved in it were run ragged. Making the coffee, buying the papers, setting the toys out, clearing up. And that whatever kind of friendships were being formed, they weren't really being formed between the church people that were there and the guests who'd come. So they were providing a service, but they weren't offering friendship. Though it was in their hearts to offer friendship, they weren't actually doing it. And so they made a choice, which wasn't an easy choice. They chose to close it down. And 
they said to all of those who had come, look, we always really wanted to be your friends. So instead of doing all of this, we're just going to be going down the park next week. And if anyone wants to come, um, you know, we'd love to, to actually get to know you and to share. Actually to share, can we start sharing our lives? And most of the people that had come to receive the service were not interested in being their friends. They'd enjoyed receiving a gift but didn't want to know those who'd been giving it, particularly. But some did. And so a new community began to form of friends, of people who shared a common delight and challenge in having children with Down syndrome, uh, but who were becoming friends and sharing life. And it was possible to, for people to be themselves uh, always round in a way that hadn't happened before. Uh, on one particular occasion, one person was quite sick. And one of the children, not knowing that this wasn't the thing that you do in kind of mixed Christian and non-Christian company, grabbed hold of two adults and said, you need to pray. Come on! <laughs> and so they began to pray for healing in the context of this community that had formed. And uh, the story is ongoing. People are discovering in that community that really what, what Jesus did was not remain in heaven and send a message out or provide angels to offer a service. But he came himself and he offered friendship. And people found that friendship. He was known as a friend of sinners. And in that, they not only heard a word, but they saw something. And they were drawn to him. That's what's going on now in that community. Because they reviewed things and they were flexible. And Jesus speaks to that. He says to these disciples as they seek to become apostles, you'll need to be flexible in order to keep your eye on the ball of people. It's always about people. It's about doing good to people. It's about saving life. It's about people. Let's be flexible for the sake of people and not let our habits and our fixed expectations stand in the way of people. It's really the story of the, well, the parable of the Good Samaritan is precisely the same thing. Okay, we're going to have a video which has got this guy in it. You may have seen this already, I don't know, but let's watch it together. Grace Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new, most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Let's keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. For the past couple years, he's been assisting coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. You know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow, all hour and a half, and let's get ready for Arcadia. Let's okay. go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team. For the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and toweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make I just, it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed, too, but the third was a charm. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total. And each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. 
his last basket right at the buzzer created total mayhem because he is autistic Jason says he's used to feeling different but never this different never this wonderful Steve Hartman CBS News Rochester New York cool very cool what the coach did with this young lad was just a little bit like Jesus. That's what our Jesus is like. He doesn't leave people out on the edge. He sees what's in them, knows what they're capable of, and he includes them. And we get that again. It's the other thing we get most of in these few chapters. As Jesus takes the disciples and helps them on the way, makes them into apostles again and again and again and again. He includes people that you'd never include and beyond what you'd expect. Levi, Matthew, he's also known as the tax collector. So he's got, Jesus has called these fishermen, salt of the earth types from up north. And then he, sorry, then the next thing he does is he, he gets a, a loan, like the tax collector, the closest thing I think we've got in our society is like really mean loan sharks with baseball bats knocking on your door. It's about the closest we've got. And this guy was in charge of people who operated like that. And Jesus says, you're in. Suit up. You're in. There'll be something for you to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been one of the first four that Jesus, the Messiah, called, I'd have been feeling pretty pucker at that point. And then he goes and calls Levi. Like, this is bringing, like, I thought I was part of something special. But it feels like the specialness has just gone down quite a long way. Because he's in it. Jesus does it deliberately. He doesn't just call them all at once, but again and again, he expands his circle and in surprising ways. In, uh, the next, that's in Luke chapter 5. In chapter 6, he's called one more person. Blow it. He goes and calls another seven. There's 12 of them now. Not just four, not just five. There's 12 of them, and there's a right mix in amongst all whom he has called. Jesus is pushing Simon and Andrew and James and John. And it takes them a while to get it, doesn't it? Because towards the end of the Gospels, we have James and John's mum coming to Jesus and saying, uh, you will be BFFs with, with my sons, won't you? Seriously, like you, it's like you called them first. They were there at the beginning. They helped bring the nets in. They've been the longest supporters. They'll be at your right-hand side, won't they? It took them a while to get it. Jesus kept doing it. Luke chapter 7, there's this woman who's known as sinful woman. And she comes and she anoints Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, having washed them with her tears. Talk about pushing it out there to include people. And just to make it all clear, in chapter 8, when Jesus' mother and brothers come, he says, no, 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 they're not my family. Anyone who's coming in and following me is my family. Jesus is still doing this. Have you ever noticed that at any given point in time, there's normally someone in your life that you find really difficult? They might be slightly closer or slightly further away, but there's pretty much always someone in your life that you find really difficult. It's a device. It's part of God's training plan. He, he wants you to just find ways of tapping into his love for people. This is one of them. There's another one we touched this morning. When we prayed for Yian, I don't know about you, but as we prayed, there was like a rush of compassion and love that I felt as we prayed. And other people are nodding. As we stepped out to pray, uh, wondering how we should pray, praying nonetheless. It's a rush of God's compassion came uh, we want to see those prayers answered in ways that will do you guys good and give glory to God. But there was this compassion that came in. 
God is determined one way or another to get that compassion into our guts. And so one of the things that he does is um, he gives us teachers. And our best teachers are often the neediest people. Um, Friendship with people whom we find really difficult. This is one, it's another one of God's tools. Giving us people in our lives that we find difficult. Those who are needy, unworthy, ungiving, unlovely. People who are abrupt, opinionated, who lack social skills, perhaps. God gives us such people. And friendship with people that we find difficult generally leaves us feeling small and weak and unable. And that, right there, is where love begins. No longer loving, no, no longer doing things for people because of what we think we'll get from it. Feeling, the, the, the moment at which we feel like we're pouring something into a black hole, but we keep doing it, that's around about the point where love's kicked in. There's, 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 no, there's no other motive at that point other than wanting to do people good. Jesus pushes people. He pushes, sorry, he pushes his disciples to include and include and include. Okay, there's two more things that I need to move through really quite quickly. One is this. It's always good to have a cockroach in any PowerPoint presentation. Um, so I did a PhD in cockroach behavior, so... Uh, it's just a little indulgence that has to happen from time to time. Um, but the point of this picture is it looks profoundly wrong and you definitely don't want to drink it. It's just a little way of trying to establish in us another feeling that is in the heart of God. There's God wants to pour his compassion into our guts. Um, but also, purity matters. Personal purity really matters. It's in this section that we get the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, which is about loving your enemies, forgiving, avoiding hypocrisy, and very challengingly saying that everything that, that there is will be brought into the open. It's recorded again in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, everything whispered in the secret place, it will be proclaimed in the open. Um, I'm imagining that probably extends to the list of our Google searches on Judgment Day. I'm guessing... And if everything that's done in secret's in the open, it kind of means everything. So whatever's going on in our lives will will come out into the open. It's in it's in this chunk of Matthew's gospel that the Sermon on the Mount sits, in between calling them as disciples and sending them as apostles. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount sits, which covers all of those things in the Sermon on the Plain and then some. Speak truthfully. Don't harbor lust. Don't worry. Don't be angry. Remain faithful to marriage. I'm not going to labor this. My experience is that whenever I talk about these sorts of matters, personal purity, that what actually happens for everyone is there's something that pops up. Um, some particular, this is just, the Holy Spirit is very gracious to us. He's determinedly sanctifying us. Um, but he takes one thing at a time. And there'll be something that he's working on with you right now. And as soon as I say personal purity matters, that something, whatever it will be, will go pop up. It's there. Because I know there's some, I don't know what it is for everyone, but I know there's something. Because the Holy Spirit's always sanctifying us and there's always something he's trying to do with us. So there'll be something. I don't need to labor the point. I'm just taking a moment to draw attention to that as part of the overall picture. The inclusiveness of the community does not come at the expense of personal purity. And then the last thing is this, that um, Jesus took time to explain how authority works. How authority works. The two bits in Luke's gospel that touch on this, and it's slightly different in the other gospels, the two bits in Luke's gospel that I've referenced there are his time with a centurion, and the parable of the sower, 
with a centurion. He goes to him and the centurion says, look, just send your word. I know how this works. I command people. I'm under authority and I command people. I know how it works. Just send a word. My servant will be healed. And Jesus says, there you go. I, I have this mental picture of him turning to the disciples. Uh huh. This is what you should be doing. This is how it works. Takes them to the centurion and they see how, it, how authority is explained. And Jesus says, this is amazing. This guy's not even an Israelite. He's not even a Jew. And here it happens. And then in the parable of the sower, he explains that the, the word that's sent out, it's like seed sown. And there's a couple of things that he explains in that parable. He says that the word has a power for life in it all by itself. You throw it out, it's got life in it. We don't have to make things happen. We don't have to make things grow. It's in the thing that God's given to us. The, this authoritative word from God has life in it. Praise God. Um, that the truth is that the fruit of that varies. Sometimes it lands on a path. Sometimes it doesn't go very deep. Different things happen. Some people it bears a whole load of fruit. Uh, the difference between whether it bears fruit or not is to do with a person's response. Some people embrace the word. Others reject it. And he's training these disciples to become apostles. He's getting them ready to exercise authority in his name, to do the good to others that he's been doing and that they've seen. He says, look, it would help you to understand how this thing works. Not everything you do is going to succeed. Not every authoritative word that you speak is going to bear the fruit that you hope for, that you long for. There's room for personal response in this. And there's, there's variation in what happens. That's also true right here and now. In Sunday preaching, which is obviously what I'm doing, the same, this same thing is going on. Um, I am speaking a message that I believe, because it's come from the scriptures, not because anything I've made up, but because it's come from the scriptures, it is the word of God that we're looking at together. And so there is an authority in these things. It's not to do with me. There's an authority in these things. And, and yet, there will be a varied response right here. I have a rule of thumb that some of you may know. I mention it occasionally. I have a rule of thumb, which is um, four people asleep whilst I'm preaching is normal. Uh, people work shifts, and, and I, you know, I get it. It's okay. Although you have had an extra night's sleep. Uh, night's sleep? Hour sleep last night. Anyway, um, um, more, than five, sorry, more than four people asleep, and I'm starting to think that I'm really missing it. And less than four, and I think, well, you know, revival's taking place. So, I'm very aware that there's a variety of responses. And I'm going to pause now and give opportunity for us to process all... I've said quite a lot uh, in doing four chapters. The first question to process is a heart question, which is that as Jesus comes to us and says, come on then, do you want to follow me? The first question is a heart response. Are you in? Are you going to be one of those who follow... Or will you hold back? And, and, and even right now, there's a kind of hard path, shallow soil, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold thing. <laughs> and um, the best that we can do is soften our hearts and receive whatever it is that God is asking of us. The question is, at a heart level, are you in? And there's, I've, I've put a bunch of practical things here. Six points around authority, prayer, community, flexibility, purity, and learning how authority works. It's just trying to land this practically. You could choose to hang around with people who exercise godly authority. You could choose to pray. You could choose in whatever kind of community that you're in to include more people. Or maybe just to hang around other people who do that and see what it looks like and see what it feels like. You could choose to be flexible 
could choose to pay attention to whatever that one thing was that popped up when I mentioned purity. You can choose to take time to learn how, rather than, rather than questioning whether authority is real, rather than questioning the authority structures of society and whether they're the right ones, it would be more fruitful to learn about how authority works so that you can also exercise it in the interest of others and do them good in the way that Jesus did. So I want to leave that there for a moment and give you an opportunity to answer the question in your heart. In all of these things, do you want to follow? My prayer is that you do. God would help us to follow him. And there's, I just want to pray, Father God, would you give us practical little things Thank you that you touch our hearts deeply. Thank you that your word goes right through us and into every part of who we are, dividing soul and spirit. I thank you, too, that at the end of it all, it's simple to take the next step with you, that you, you speak something to us that's like a baby step that we can take that will lead to greater fruitfulness. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would drop those next little baby steps into people's minds right across the room here as we take a moment to reflect and to ask you to lead us forward.